standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and tis the season where Clarky Cat starts bringing his outdoor business indoors and it is noxious, which, you know, is nice. Good lad. Busy lad. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and... You don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. <laughs> can you hear me dancing? <laughs> <laughs> I can. <laughs> no, but really, I think I've overdone it on the thinking this week. I'm still dancing. <laughs> Later on, publishing legend and utter delight, Carmen Khalil chats to me about founding Virago Press, class, poverty, history, the need for revolution and being a difficult woman. I, uh, I full on love her. And you can hear the full interview as one of this week's Sunday Chops. Ahead of Alcohol Awareness Week, I chat to Elsa Clark about raising a son with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and why drinking when pregnant is such a contentious conversation in the UK. It really is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And in Rated or Dated, we retread 1999's The Green Mile. Christ on death row, it is long. But is it worth the numbum? Find out in a bit. But first, Gwydnees. Sorry, uh, Gadness. Uh, Hang on, am I reading that right? Good news? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. You don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. (laughs) His little laugh at the end of that is amazing. David Diggs, you are a king. Okay, in wildly unconventional style, let's start with the good news first. Outrageous. Joe Biden will be the next US president. There will be a female veep. And the rapacious Trump family will be resoundingly distanced from any levers of power. In the words of a particularly effective pub landlady I used to work for, I don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. Loud cheering, loud cheering, loud cheering. The internet is currently awash with hot takes about what just happened, why and what will happen next. So I'm going to spare you yet another one of those and talk about what we actually do know. After the largest voter turnout in history and several long, sleepless days, it became very clear that it was all over bar the shouting. And never has that expression been so (laughs) apt. On Thursday night, Trump made a statement from the White House in quite possibly the whiniest tone ever used by a head of state to claim that the election was being stolen from him and the vote count should stop in areas where he was ahead and continue in areas where he was gaining ground. Ah. Quite possibly the dumbest piece of bad sportsmanship (laughs) since someone accused me of cheating in a quiz by knowing more than them. That does seem unfair, Hannah. In amongst all the lies, however, was nestled a shiny nugget of what I absolutely believe to be the truth. The statement that the response from his supporters had meant he had, and I quote, never seen so much love and affection. I mean, if someone had shown it to him before, 
Perhaps the world could have been spared the last four years. I think you've hit on something there. His inner circle quickly rallied to his defence. His son, Eric, um, if you don't know, that's the one who looks like he was dropped on his head as a baby, (laughs) tweeted a video of someone allegedly burning ballots, which was quickly debunked because, of course, it was. And Rudolph Giuliani held a press conference in which he claimed that some of those Democrat votes could have come from Mars or indeed Biden (laughs) himself. Still, at least his hands were outside his trousers when he said it. Small mercies. There were also claims that in Michigan, many of the Biden votes came from deceased people. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If the dead are rising and airing their views on current affairs, I'm glad even they could see that Trump is a twat. (laughs) But if you've got a little voice in your head or more likely in your Twitter feed saying, but what if he wins the court cases or refuses to leave? I'd refer you to what I've been saying all year. America is, despite hyperbole that it's essentially been a fascist regime for the past four years, a democracy. And if Trump fails to leave, he will be removed. And for a man whose ego enters the room before he does, that would not be a good look. Mm. But what about those court cases? Well, sadly for Team Trump, they would have to turn up the goods actual hard proof rather than the people are saying shit which seemingly flies so well on twitter i think you've come up with the alternative name for twitter which is people are saying shit yeah 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 quick trademark that we can make a new social media site (laughs) it's all the rage (laughs) there's nothing about the series of arrested development characters he sent to argue this case that assures me that they are anywhere near convincing any judge that this election was hijacked. Just out of interest, I spoke to my brother on Saturday night, Mickey, and um, he's been at work. I think he'd done like 60 hours in the previous four days. So much as he was interested in the American election, he hadn't had a lot of time. And I said, have you seen who they've sent to defend Trump in court? And he said, oh, shit, it's not that hologram of Robert Kardashian, is it? (laughs) And I was like, I'm having that and stealing that. But I'll steal it, but give him credit. In fact, I'd like you to consider one more thing. That the current I'll see you in court rhetoric is actually about something else. Nestled at the bottom of what are increasingly looking like demands for money from his supporters is a bit of small print saying that some of the cash raise would be used to start paying off the costs of the Trump campaign. And there you have it. Once a grifter, always a grifter. And with what is going to amount to a very expensive divorce from Melania looming, I'd argue that this amounts to a last-ditch effort to rinse all of the money he can out of his supporters while he still can. And now, over to Mickey, who's on an industrial estate outside a landscaping firm next to a sex shop, because that's totally normal. What do you make of it, Mick? <laughs> Just a bit, uh, bit of tumbleweed here, some dildos. It's very exciting. <laughs> what do I make of it? I like the result. I think it's good. Great. While all eyes have been on America, COVID-19 took a hard-earned break from death, destruction and world panic to put its feet up and shake its fist at people washing their hands. (laughs) Except, of course, it didn't. As we record on Monday the 9th of November, global deaths stand at 1.25 million people, while infections tally a staggering 50 million plus. Bleak doesn't even start to cover it. 
But, you know, tell that to the Marines. On Sunday, Manchester City Centre filled with people opposing the national lockdown. Some apparently feeling so strongly about it that they got on a coach from Cumbria to stand maskless in Piccadilly Gardens yelling, Rise up! and Freedom! Hopefully a few of them were also shouting irony, given it's this kind of covidiacy that's likely to see lockdown extended. Do I like lockdown? No. (laughs) Do I think it's an elaborate plot to impose mass surveillance? Also no. Aside from not causing the aforementioned death, destruction and world panic, my one wish for coronavirus is that it was Darwinian. Then, if someone wanted to believe it's all a hoax brought to you by the elite cabal, aliens and not dead Elvis, it would be their risk to take. Go for your life, pals, but don't be surprised when you can't smell your tea and your lungs are screaming. Sadly, COVID-19 is neither Darwinian nor straightforward. It isn't necessarily the selfish tinfoil hat fucks chanting, take off your masks and (laughs) blibbering about a great fascist reset. That's a genuine hashtag, but I wouldn't bother having a look. That will end up in our already strained ICUs because that is where we're at. ICU nurses are now allowed to treat two people at the same time because hospital admissions are soaring. On the first day of lockdown two, four weeks and counting, Boris Johnson stressed the new measures were different than in March this year because schools, universities and nurseries remain open. And he hopefully referenced as normal a Christmas as possible if people stick to the rules. There's still time to get on Santa's nice list, boys and girls. (laughs) Meanwhile, as if to put the light of that immediately, Chancellor Rishi Sunak extended the COVID job furlough scheme until March 2021, as the second coronavirus wave and renewed lockdown measures threatened to drive up unemployment. Johnson, usually puffed up with Bullingdon bluster, looks deflated, and for the first time ever, I can relate. But in keeping with this week's more positive vibe, news broke today, Monday, that one of the various vaccines in the final stages of testing is showing positive results. A preliminary analysis shows it can prevent more than 90% of people from getting COVID-19, and that follows testing on 43,500 people across six countries, and no safety concerns have been raised. Developers Pfizer and BioNTech described it as a great day for science and humanity, Uh, Again, Twitter or people saying shit, (laughs) the anti-vaxxers aren't quite as thrilled by it. Yeah, I mean, if the anti-vaxxers genuinely don't want it, then, I mean, at least that pushes you and I further up in the queue, I'd imagine, to getting it. Good call. Uh, Excuse me while I go and set up a a sock puppet (laughs) Twitter account (laughs) to encourage that. So, Mick, have you seen that Owen Jones has started his own media organisation? Oh, sweet Christ, on a bike. Anyway, have you got any actual good news? Indeed, more good news. I know, it comes once more in the form of Marcus Rashford. Can we please crown him Mr In Charge of Everything? Please and thank you, please. (laughs) So, yeah, it's another U-turn ahoy as our PM Boris Johnson got on the blower to Sir King Rashford to confirm the latest government about face on free school meals. This reversal, and we've all lost count on where we're at now, right, means a package that includes a £170 million COVID winter grant scheme to support vulnerable families in England and an extension of the holiday activities and food programme to the Easter, summer and Christmas breaks next year. Yes! And with that warm glow of something right happening in the world fostered in your belly, can I ask you to share the joy and spread the warmth that bit farther? Wrap Up London's annual coat collection runs until this Saturday, which is the 14th of November. 
It's simple but brilliant. You drop off a spare coat at a COVID-19 safe collection space and after a 48-hour coat quarantine, Wrap Up Warm's volunteers will sort the coats before distributing them to homeless, elderly and refugee charities across the city. You can follow at Wrap Up London for more info. And yes, I do know that this is very London-centric, but it is also a good time to sort through your winter wardrobe and see if anything can be donated to a refuge near you. Indeed. When I worked at the Cambridge News, I used to do an annual coat collection in which people bought me their coats and I would take what usually amounted to about two black sacks to my local homeless shelter. At the moment, probably ring them first to see whether they'd like that many coats delivered to them, if there's anyone there to receive them. Also worth mentioning Tanya Moore, our friend Tanya Moore. Oh, I love you, uh, Tanya Moore. Her aunt and her mum are running a service to try to get sleeping bags to homeless people or indeed anyone who might need a sleeping bag and you'll be able to find out more on tanya's twitter page is that a word twitter page. twitter page i mean <laughs> they are words i don't know whether you needed to put them together <laughs> more news next time well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week it's that time of the week when sexism shoots. It scores. They think it's all over, but it absolutely is not. And inequality continues apace in the world of football. I'm going to kick off by quoting from The Guardian's Tanya Aldred, who wrote, The new lockdown in England has revealed the inequality that still exists between the provision of girls and boys football at the highest level. And while I'd argue it's hardly a revelation, I do see where Aldred's coming from. And it is good to keep shining a light on it again. And again, and why is no one looking <laughs> at the light? You see my point. So, a big sigh, and what now? Well, girls at club academies from Brighton to Manchester United were being told to hang up their studs for lockdown, whereas for the boys, it is football as usual. Yep, the FA has forbidden training and matches for women and girls from the under-9s talent clubs through to the 16- to 21-year-olds at women's elite development squads because, and I quote... Their resources, including finances and personnel, do not meet the necessary elite protocols required. Now, why would that be? It's almost, almost, as if moves like this, which undermine women's football at every level, are part of the problem when it comes to women's football having the finances and personnel that allow it to be level with the men's game. Back of the net sexism, back of the net. I think we just end this every week with me just sighing, really, a really <laughs> laboured sigh, just... <sighs> Hello, I am joined via the magic of Zoom by Carmen Khalil, mother of the incredible Virago Press, publisher, writer, critic, and something that brings me great joy, self-proclaimed difficult woman. Carmen, Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd like to start by thanking you for a lot of the astonishing books written by women that line my bookshelves. You founded Virago Press in 1973. Could you tell us why and how Virago came about? I actually began in 1972, just after I'd finished working on Ink. Ink was an underground newspaper, you know, meant to be as an alternative to the Fleet Street Press we had then and the absolutely delicious press we have now. Uh, it was meant to be present another vision, uh-huh. an alternative vision. But unfortunately, Richard Neville, one of the founders, was arrested for obscenity for the Oz trial. And so the trial came on at the same time, so ink faded. 
But on Inc, I met many women who were the feminists I first started work with. Um, Marsha Rowe, Anna Coote, people like that. Mm-hmm. Anna Coote wrote Sweet Freedom with Beatrix Campbell. I mean, I don't suppose people know of these people anymore because it's such a long time ago. Anyway, Marsha went on to start Spare Rib yes. with Rosie, Rosie Boycott. And I decided if they could do it for magazines, I could do it for books. And that's when I got the idea in 72. But I, I formed the company in 72 because I always wanted it to be a women's business, you know, that would survive. I didn't want any more of those things that were in start and stop, which they have over the centuries. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that's probably the one thing I've achieved with Farago hasn't folded yet. Yeah, ah. so like that that's very true. At the time, did it feel as momentous as it went on to be? It's a p- peculiar story, and I, everybody wants me to write my memoirs, and I probably now shall. But what I absolutely loved doing, it wasn't torment to me at all. What was often torment to me was the disapproval I received from my fellow feminists, because I wasn't English, you see. And that was a drawback, frightful drawback. I was a very sort of typical Australian. You know, I always say what I think, and I've got a foul trucker's mouth, and I wasn't raised to think you couldn't yell at people. You know, I wasn't just wasn't raised like an English person. Uh-huh. And that caused a lot of trouble with the serious sisters. And when I look back on it now, I regret that I wasn't perfect, but actually they weren't either. No, no, yeah, no. (laughs) Perfect doesn't get things done. I don't think. I think that's what we do. As I've got very old, I do now see that really what I was, as well as being a feminist and an incredibly well-read person because of my father and my mother, I was a business entrepreneur. You know, I could make a business happen, which women can do. You see. Yes, but I suppose. I mean, the 1970s, that was starting to be accepted and there was that huge second-wave feminism happening. But it still felt out of the ordinary for a woman to set up something like a publishing company. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you want to go into that at any time, go to the British Library where my archive is. I think I got the worst press in the world. Let me see if I can think of anybody who got worse press than me. Prince Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) He's always in the newspapers. What are you on about? (laughs) But he gets a terrible coverage, doesn't he? That is true. That is true. As he will soon. Yes, absolutely. But in fact, you were mentioned on our podcast via the British Library just last week because I went to their new exhibition and was very excited that they've got your archives. Yes, they have. And also, I didn't put any bars on the archive. I wanted everybody to be able to read and know how difficult it was, how easy it was, what fun we had, what rows we had, how awful some of the people were. You know, in other words, the human race in Virago. Yeah. I think they have to keep a few bits back because they've got rules and the government's got rules, but I don't have any rules. You can read the whole lot as far as I'm concerned. There's a line in your acknowledgements for Oh Happy Day, which we're going to talk about in a second, that really struck me. You mentioned your debt to Angela Carter and you say, Angie and I shared a fine rage. Rage is uncomfortable to live with, but it does give you an inquiring mind and an objecting spirit. And rage is still seen as a most unwomanly emotion, which is, of course, bullshit. Yeah. I'm glad you read. That's a marvellous question for me, because I am an enraged person. There's no question. Yeah, definitely. It's in every page of my book, isn't it? Why do people put up with all this? You know, that sort of thing. So it's a lovely question. Well, Angie, you see... I wasn't raised in a 
in any way that would suit me to live in England. There's no question about that. But um, I knew nothing about English politics. I knew about the Tudors, and we, we were taught English history, and we taught we were taught that England won the war, which was a complete load of cods. Yeah. But um, we weren't taught anything about its alternative history, its other history. We taught nothing about what faced me when I came to England. So when I met Angie, whom I uh, I did the publicity for one of her books before I started my own publishing company, and then I published her at Virago and at Chatter and Windows, she was a deeply, deeply political woman and very funny with it and hilariously enraged. I mean, but not enraged so she was going to bash you over the head with a crowbar, <laughs> but her tongue on the subject. So she taught me more or less everything I knew about English politics. And I suppose I've slavishly followed her opinions, really, but I've made my own mind up. Didn't agree with about everything. You had a higher brow than I had about literature. Let's talk about your latest book, Oh Happy Day, Those Times and These Times. So to put it in incredibly simple terms, it's the story of your British ancestors. But in reality, it is, it's a hugely impressive piece of work, impeccably researched, mammoth in scope, and a real eye-opener, I think, to British history. It feels, reading it, like this is something that you had to write, that you, it was a force of nature. It feels like you really had to write it. Is that the case? It wasn't what I intended to write. But, um, I mean, two things impelled me, Mickey. One was... Um, I was going to write my memoirs, which I've had a contract for for years, <laughs> decades, is but I wasn't going to do it, really. Anyway, um, <laughs> when Australia got that Prime Minister called John Howard and he started putting boat people and refugees into camps and islands and prisons, really, and treating them like dirt, just like the, the tragic people who died in the Channel this week. Yeah. I thought, who the hell does he think he's descended from, you know? I started out thinking, I'm going to tell them where we all came from. And I pretty much, I didn't know I came from the scum of the earth. No, no, I knew nothing about any of my ancestors before I wrote that book and did the research. But once I did the research, it was perfectly clear I do come from the scum of the earth. <laughs> and I bet John Howard does too. Anyway, moving on from that, then we move on to the financial crash of 2008. And after that, George Osborne brought in austerity. And then I really flipped. You see, Angie wasn't alive to be enraged on my behalf. It was just simply a mortal sin, as far as I was concerned, to make Agree. the ordinary people of this country, including you know, people of this country, pay for what big business, financiers, globalisation, international capitalism, all that stuff, had inflicted on the, 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 the economies of the world. And why should ordinary people pay? A lot of it reads like a horror story, I've got to be honest with you. I know. <laughs> and you paint this vivid, bleak picture of life for paupers and the labouring poor in late 18th, early 19th century Britain. You can really feel that rage we were talking about within every page and the descriptions of this barbaric life led by so many, including your ancestors. Was it a really emotional writing process? No. No. <laughs> I just, I, I mean, I don't, it really wasn't. I don't think, um, I don't think anyone raised in the centuries we've been, the century I've been raised in, can 
not be capable of contemplating horror. Think what the Nazis did to the Jews. Think what the Germans did to millions of Europeans in those labor camps, which no one has ever written enough about. Think about how the British treated their peoples in the lands they invaded and acquired for their empire. So no, it didn't horrify me. What horrified me was that history could repeat itself and that people who go like George Osborne, for example, there's my dog, she wants to come in. <laughs> my cat's doing the same at the door. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's horrifying that somebody like George Osborne, David Cameron, much worse, of course, or others that we have now. I think, you know, David Cameron was quite a, a mild sort of creature generally, not of great brain, but not a man of great brain. George Osborne was more intelligent, but um, why didn't they understand? What what is stopped some part of their education so that they don't see how other people live? Let's go back to Oh Happy Day. Now, when you said it was full of horror, it's not just full of horror. It's also full of irony. <laughs> It's got a love story in the middle of it. Oh, my God, it's so romantic. And that's, like, one of my questions is, like, amidst all this horror, it's one of the most romantic stories of George Conquest and Sari Lacey being pulled apart and then coming together and getting married in their 60s. Absolutely. I want someone to make a TV programme and leave out all my rage and just tell the story. (laughs) What about the Hulks, Nikki? Did you know about the Hulks? Oh, the Hulks. I knew a little bit about the Hulks. So I guess it's worth pointing out, like, some of the stuff that you cover, like the poor law and the corn law and the, the, the lives of Stockingers. I'm from Manchester, so it was more about the mill towns that we learned. I absolutely learned in my history lessons at school, but Empire didn't come with a serving of the injustice that obviously was the bedrock of it. But I had I'd read about the, the Hulks that they kept all the convicts on. The horror of them, I think I've never read it, captured as well I could almost smell it in the way that you describe it and it's it was just horrific the other thing Mickey that I really want anybody who buys the book to read to understand is that what happened was the abolition of the slave trade began at the end of the 18th century so let's just take 1800 it was about 1803 that began so all the shipping magnates who'd shipped slaves and made their money moved seamlessly in the next 30 years, because it didn't become law until 33, 34, into transporting convicts, but Mm -hmm. also to manning these hulks all along the southern coast of England. They weren't just in Woolwich. They were in Sheerness, everywhere, along along the, the estuary of the Thames and along the south coast. And that's how they treated their own people, just like they treated the slaves. And that's why I think when you hear people talking about Black Lives Matter, and sometimes I think you've got to understand that it's a matter of class as well as colour. Absolutely. Because the suffering of the people of this country up to the, up to about 1945 is simply unbelievable. You see, when they sent the um, soldiers to the First World War, they found those on high, those who ruled those blue, that many of the men had scurvy and bandy legs and they couldn't fight. And that was the beginning of when they began to think we must feed our working class well because otherwise they won't be good soldiers. So, I mean, it's centuries of treatment like this. And I just cannot understand why the English don't revolt. But what can I do? Write my book. Do you think it's partly 
because the people who would need to have that impetus to do the revolution, to make the revolution, are so tied down and mired down in just getting by on a day-to-day level that they don't have the energy to fight the politics that keeps them in that place. It's also that sort of whole aura in this country of looking up to your betters, something I was not raised to do, you know. I was never raised to think the Queen, you know, needed all the money she had and she's got. What I don't understand that sort of structure of life where some, it's absolutely lovely, according to English people, that the Queen lives in about seven castles and has seven million, you know, I don't know the exact sum. And also I don't think they're bad people by any means, actually much worse politicians than the Queen and uh, Prince Philip. But the injustice of it is something that doesn't seem to strike people, whereas it does strike me. I really don't think I should stay in this country, actually. I think I'll be expelled after my book is read. (laughs) (laughs) Carmen, thank you so, so much for chatting to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh Happy Day is published by Jonathan Cape and available from all good bookshops and comes with a massive standard issue recommendation. It's, It's the history we should be taught at school. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. And that's exactly what I wanted to do when I started writing the book, for it to be taught in schools. Thank you. So, Mickey, a couple of weeks ago, I accidentally opened an Instagram account. Sorry, what now? Yeah, I wanted to look at something on Instagram that quite a few people had sent me. And I have no idea what I'm doing with Instagram. And I was doing something else whilst on my phone. And... I managed to sign in, uh, which it turns out means... <laughs> I managed open. to enter all of my details. <laughs> no, it's, I think it said sign in with your Google or sign in with your Facebook. Uh, and I must have just pressed that quickly to go, oh, hello. Didn't even realise I'd done it till I got an email to say I had six followers. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I have an Instagram account. Now, I will close it. So my advice to our listeners would be, don't follow me on Instagram because you'll get nothing and then nothing where should they go instead hannah well that's what i was going to ask you you are the instagram person we have an instagram account right we do we have at standard issue podcast i'd like to say that i am not the instagram person but you will find my flailing attempts at being entertaining via photographs mainly of the zoo the zoonilliums there's rats and a cat and a dog and occasionally peggy and joan got in on there and sometimes, you know, some excellent women that deserve your time and attention. It's very it's very on brand standard issue. So how do people go about, you know, looking at videos of my cat having a fight with a printer? <laughs> they just go to Art Standard Issue Podcast and there she is in all her she definitely won that fight glory. She didn't. She, <laughs> she fell off the table. <laughs> it's like my drama now. I bought a, a Vax to do my carpet, which is fucked mostly because Peggy just wanders around tipping cups of tea over all day. But the trouble is, the vax makes Joan piss herself. So I'm now like (laughs) Sisyphus, just cleaning the carpet (laughs) as she like creates this trail of panic. Maybe I try and get that onto our Instagram account somewhere. It sounds like brilliant content. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I am joined from Edinburgh by Elsa Clark. Hello, Elsa. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Hello, Hannah. Elsa and I have spoken before about the Edinburgh 7, which was very interesting. Back when there was an Edinburgh festival, 
Yeah, we could actually sit next to each other and have a coffee. I know. We are here to talk about FASD, Fetal Mm -hmm. Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. Alcohol Awareness Week is coming up and there was actually a Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Awareness Week back in September. Mm -hmm. Led us to have a conversation about it on the podcast, led you to get in touch and make some very, very interesting points to me that I hadn't (laughs) considered and I think are super Mm -hmm. interesting. Elsa, your son has FASD. So perhaps the best place for us to start is maybe if you could explain to people what it is, how it manifests itself and how you discovered that your son had it. It's a range of neurological and can be physical conditions as a result of prenatal alcohol exposure. It can affect every single area of the brain. So we consider there's 10 brain domains there. It can affect everything from your executive function. So that's your ability to plan, to understand what's coming next, to understand cause and effect, to have impulse control, your sensory and motor skills, your academic skills, your actual brain structure, living and social skills, your attention, cognition, communication, memory, and also emotional regulation. So it's a neurological condition. disability I guess in in layman's terms it is permanent organic brain damage as a result of alcohol exposure in utero we adopted our son when he was a baby we knew that he'd been exposed to class a drugs in utero and that he had undergone withdrawal after birth it was in, in intensive care for about 12 days there was very little mention of alcohol I think there was one mention of alcohol on his medical record and as he grew and developed we realized that something was wrong something was off kilter it started off when he was a baby as what I now know as sensory seeking stuff but it it was quite unusual behavior like quite violent head banging and that's because he was looking for sensory input he's under sensitive to touch so he was actually seeking that out if if I took him to baby and toddler groups he would scream he's oversensitive to hearing So what was nice singing to other kids was unbearable to him. I didn't know that. I just wondered why he was screaming the place down at Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And then as he got older, the behavioural stuff came through. It could be quite violent. He went through a phase of being pretty aggressive. His speech was extremely slow to develop. But I think what did for me is when he went through the toddler phase and we implemented the whole kind of solid boundaries, solid rules, cause and effect, naughty corner, he didn't get it. And it actually escalated his behaviour. But the crunch point came where his childminder said, I can't deal with him anymore. And his nursery was on the point of excluding him. I took quite a sudden break from my teaching job and started looking more at what this was and came to understand that this is not a case of he won't do something. It's a case of he can't do mm-hmm. something. There was a really poor fit between his ability and the environment that we were trying to force him into. And so we pursued a diagnosis, which in itself was extremely difficult to get. Well, my first guess would be that the symptoms that you have described there could Mm -hmm. also suggest other things, perhaps autism (laughs) or ADHD. Mm -hmm. Uh, I presume you Mm -hmm. had to go through all of that. We did. At the time when we were trying to get diagnosis for him, obviously we're in Scotland, there was no pathway for diagnosis for FASD. There now is an established one now. And I believe they're trying to do that, get some parity south of the border as well with the guidelines that have just come out. Yeah, he had an autism assessment. It actually turns out he also has autism and ADHD, but they are 
component parts of his FASD and we actually got these diagnoses after the FASD one. A lot of people it's the other way around or the kids are misdiagnosed. So yeah, it can be mistaken as oppositional defiant disorder, it can be mistaken as ADHD, it can be mistaken as autism. The other one is attachment, particularly if a child is fostered or adopted, has lots of disruptive placements, it can be put down to attachment and poor attachment. So it can be misunderstood as a lot of different things and in this country we're still way behind places like Canada and actually recognising it. It's not fixable. Is it treatable in some way? Is there help available to parents who have children with FASD? Oh, that's two distinctly different questions and different (laughs) answers. Is it fixable? Neurologically, no. Psychologically, you can put supports in place that will minimise the risk of what we call secondary effects. It used to be called secondary disabilities. So basically, the secondary effects come into play when, as I said, there's a chronic poor fit between that person and the environment where people misunderstand their behaviour as willful. And secondary effects can be things like poor mental health, school exclusion, you know, just disengaging mm-hmm. with with the world and society, involvement in crime, sexually inappropriate behaviour or vulnerabilities as they grow older, particularly as they approach teenage years and into adulthood, girls with FASD are particularly vulnerable to sexual exploitation and to, to being manipulated. Socially and emotionally, your average person with FASD is half their chronological age. Right. So if you have a 20 year old who might look and talk like a 20 year old they can have a functioning age socially and emotionally of a 10 year old so if you think about the implications for Mm. that in relationships um you know members of the opposite sex and in money i mentor um, a girl who has fasd and there's been problems online with um you know and and it's, it's common with 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 other with other individuals as well, grooming, they're particularly susceptible to grooming as teenagers because they don't understand social boundaries. They will possibly do things that other other girls wouldn't do. They might well, because they're impulsive, they might well go and meet up with people they don't know mm. and have only met online because they have a faulty understanding of what friendship is and they might think that person's their best friend. I have known women, young women, who've had their bank accounts emptied by unscrupulous partners because they're too trusting. Mm. Um, there's a there's a huge risk with pregnancy, and there's a there's an increased risk quite often of substance abuse. So there's an increased risk of them having a child who's got FASD. Yeah, it's so you that's know. the trouble with alcohol. It's so secular, yeah. isn't it? A, a very very high percentage of prison population, I think, probably has undiagnosed FASD. It is reckoned to be up to five times more common than autism. Really? Yep. So it is... Actually, I don't know why I'm surprised by that. No, it is the leading cause of neurodevelopmental disability in the Western world. It seems surprising, but of course it's not surprising because alcohol is everywhere. Mm. You sent me a huge amount of information on this, which was really helpful. (laughs) Sorry. No, it was. It was really interesting and it was really helpful. When a child is born with a condition the first port of call for blame in a lot of ways be that blamed by the mother or blamed by wider society mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. the mother mm-hmm. and children can be born with FASD for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons and I suppose the most obvious of these is that mothers were drinking before they were aware that they were actually they were pregnant, pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the second one being that mothers might not have known that it was as dangerous to mm-hmm. 
drink while they were pregnant. Yes. And maybe we yeah. could stop at that one and uh-huh. say, how do you feel that education of mothers, education, that's not a good word. I never really like that. Uh, information about alcohol and pregnancy is imparted by the government or by the, the health people. Oh, that's, that's an interesting one. It's quite difficult to unpick because you're not only dealing with the information, you're dealing with people's reactions yeah. to it and why people's reactions to it are the way they are. Well, the government guidelines have changed recently from it's it's relatively safe to drink occasionally in pregnancy, which is what I understood before I adopted my son. Yeah. You know, if, if, if I had been a biological mother back in 2012, 2013, I might have had a glass of wine when I was pregnant, not thinking that that was harmful yeah. because I didn't understand that alcohol is a teratogen and actually messes up the enzymes and the proteins that are the building blocks that build the brain and that the brain and central nervous system develops from embryonic stage all the way through for the nine months. I didn't understand that alcohol is metabolized at a far slower rate by a fetus. So when the mother drinks, the child she's carrying drinks, but whereas the alcohol will be out of the mother's system, within 12 hours it can stay in the baby's system for up to 48 wow and that when the brain is developing and other organs are developing and the face is developing can cause permanent changes alcohol is a teratogen in the same class as tobacco radiation thalidomide all these things that we we know are harmful to a developing child and yet that's not commonly known it's not, I don't think the science has been explained because I can't imagine anybody hearing that think it was all right to drink in pregnancy. Question, you mentioned thalidomide. I actually interviewed Matt Fraser yesterday who was left with birth defects after his, his mother mm. was one of the people that took thalidomide. What we know about thalidomide is depending on how pregnant your mother was, what stage of development she was at, mm-hmm. depended on how you were affected and That's actually okay. generally in what manner you were affected, mm-hmm. be it your limbs or your... Do we look at a similar thing with alcohol? Yes. Depending on the timing of alcohol exposure, there can be other areas of the the body that are affected too. So, for example, if you drink, now I can't remember rightly, there's, there's about a week's window in the first trimester where the face forms. And in that week, if the developing child is exposed to alcohol, they'll have the flattened philtrum and the flattened midface and the kind of small eye openings. And they have what's called the FAS face, the fetal alcohol syndrome face. But only 10% of people have those recognisable facial Mm. features. The heart can be affected, teeth can be affected, other internal organs can be affected, but there is always neurological damage because the brain forms and grows throughout Throughout. the duration of pregnancy. So for the majority of people, it's a hidden disability. Now, the third possibility, going back to why mothers were drinking in pregnancy, Mm. is of course that they, they might not have had a choice. And for, mm-hmm. for the people of the podcast, I am using um, the quotes to say choice. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, people know about my feelings about alcoholism. I'm aware it's not a choice, mm-hmm. which actually seems possibly the situation that your, your son was, yeah, was in. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think we need to be doing more to reach out to mothers in in what I could only say is destructive relationships with alcohol to Yes. Because they're in... probably the hardest people to reach. Because this is what I said on the podcast that, that when you got mm-hmm. in touch was mm-hmm. these are the people that are quite possibly lying about how much they drink when asked or mm-hmm. so sort of ingrained in, in that lifestyle that they mm-hmm. have their head in the sand about what the repercussions of yep, it would be. Absolutely. Yeah. First of all, I would say, you know, there is as many reasons why kids are exposed prenatally to alcohol as there are women who, yeah. who carry children. You know, it's, it's no respecter of socioeconomic status. It's no respecter of education. So, yes, but women who, who do have addictions and women who do have a dependency on alcohol do absolutely need more support it's a societal thing though Mm. you know it's there's so much judgment attached to women because they are the carriers of children no woman is going to sit down in an antenatal appointment and say I drank a bottle of vodka at breakfast no. You know, because I, I can absolutely understand why the nice guidelines and, and why people were up in arms about that. Why do I have to sit there? Why do you need this information? So we do. We need to, to support these women more. But I think that's primarily through education as well. And I don't know. It's, it's, it's a really difficult one. I think people with addiction, as you say, are far, far harder to get through. I think, unfortunately, there will always be children. Mm. who have FASD as a result of as a result of the trauma I think that their their mothers carry with them yeah. and you know nobody chooses to be an alcoholic no nobody chooses to to harm themselves and yeah. certainly nobody chooses to harm their child yeah. my son's mother in his case is it's generational it's grinding poverty it's it, it's addiction it's domestic violence it's a home environment that is just unfit and it's it's repeating that cycle so I could I don't have the answers about how you would break that other than people need more understanding when we had a conversation on the podcast you sent me an email as we were talking about this the attitude which I can understand of you know why are we blaming mothers don't put it on Mm -hmm. mothers Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. alcohol perhaps you know it's Mm -hmm. a choice and all of those things and you made an excellent point to me which was Mm -hmm. that we're not having this conversation about mothers smoking in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. We have decided as a country that it is wrong to smoke in pregnancy. <laughs> it's a crap idea, yeah. yeah. And yet we haven't decided that with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I mean, all I can say is that just reaffirms my idea that we yeah. have a weird relationship with it's, alcohol. It's a really messed up relationship that we have with alcohol. Now, and, and even saying that, I'm already imagining the judgment from yeah. people who are listening to this, that yeah. I'm, I'm a teetotaler and that I am completely humorless and that I'm completely boring. And now why immediately do these things come into my head? I do drink, not to excess, basically because my body can't handle it anymore and it's not particularly good for my mind either. But yeah, we we are completely and utterly messed up. The lady on Twitter, when the, the whole kind of nice guidelines yeah. thing was out and there was this um, Twitter furore, yeah, to Twitter in huge numbers. She was sitting there, very visibly pregnant, defiantly brandishing her glass of chilled Chardonnay. And I thought, would you be happy if that was a fag in your hand? Yeah. And would Twitter would be happy? you get the same right on reaction yeah. if you had a fag in your hand? No, you wouldn't. No. no. And this doesn't say much about... It doesn't say... I'm not condemning that particular woman. No. But I am saying the way we think about alcohol is royally screwed up. Yeah, totally. 
I was told I might have to cut this because otherwise I'll say it twice on the podcast in a week when I was talking about Fraser because he's in America and I was saying, you know, we still don't know if Trump won. We still don't know mm-hmm. if Biden won. But oddly, mm-hmm. you know, actually the drug laws seem to be the big winners out of this election in America. Yeah. Lots more legalisation and also lots more decriminalisation. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, which yeah. is the way it should be if we're thinking of all drugs as as the same thing. But for yeah. some reason, we've yeah. got this idea in our head as a nation that some drugs are yeah. way more acceptable yeah. than other drugs. OK, now here is the bombshell, which I didn't know about until I started reading. Heroin has less of a long-term effect on a developing fetus than alcohol. No shit. Yep. That's crazy. No shit. My child, when he was born, was off the scale with opiate withdrawal. Literally off the scale. Morphine, fits, passing blood, unable to feed. That's what we call neonatal abstinence syndrome. But I don't see many long-term effects, if any, from his heroin addiction. But I see permanent organic brain damage in eight of his 10 brain domains because of alcohol exposure. Now, alcohol is far more dangerous than any class A drug. And I am not advocating that you should go out and do a little <laughs> light heroin smoking when you're pregnant. And But that would horrify people. Yeah. The, thought of, the thought of taking class A drugs would horrify people. But in actual fact, neurologically, alcohol is more dangerous. And that's that's chemistry, neurology, biology not patriarchy not anything like that that's scientific fact yeah why are we getting our knickers in a twist about this we know better so we do better i think as well because the generation that is having babies now so you know tail end of generation x and sort of Mm -hmm. millennials that are having babies Mm -hmm. we were often born to mothers Mm -hmm. who smoke and Mm -hmm. drank Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are we perhaps waiting for a generational shift? Is fetal alcohol yeah. spectrum disorder something yeah. that's going to have to go yeah. through a generation yeah. before we understand I, it? I think that in 20 years we'll have kind of caught on. You know, if, if we look at the way autism awareness has increased over the past few years or something like dyslexia. You yeah. know, I, I have a big cousin who is a few years older than me who went through a lot of primary school undiagnosed and unsupported I think our reactions to things and our our beliefs and things do shift over time I think that there's a real resistance for alcohol though it's so ingrained in our society it's how we celebrate it's how we commiserate it's how we get rid of stress and in in actual fact I was um you know preparation for this interview I was having a little look through um some of the articles that had been written round about the the release of the NICE guidelines and and kind of shaking my head. One journalist was saying that stress, and she's she's absolutely correct in this, cortisol, maternal cortisol levels, if they're high, can affect the the fetus as well. And that their fight-flight freeze is very well developed. Their Mm. kind of primitive reactions can be heightened. And she's saying, my friend who's a GP says that stress factors are more damaging than alcohol. So if a pregnant woman wants a a half carafe of Van Rouge, then that's, you know, that's not as bad as her being stressed. And immediately I'm thinking, is alcohol the only answer to stress? Yeah. Yeah, that's ridiculous, really, isn't it? Because stress is perhaps unavoidable, whereas alcohol Alcohol in that situation is. And also, you think you're stressed now? Wait till you're parenting a kid with FASD. One who only sleeps one every three days, then you'll know what stress is. (laughs) 
I did learn something that made me go, oh, hello, when you was reading the stuff that you sent me, which yeah. is we've spent a lot of time talking about the mother, but they mm-hmm. are not the only person yeah. that can cause FASD Fabulous. in their children. Yes, absolutely. There's some really wacky stuff going on here. Yeah. Fathers who have mm-hmm. drunk heavily around the time of conception can mm-hmm. also yep. affect... Yep, so there is less of a body of evidence, although there's less of a body of evidence about the men's involvement here, but um, it's kind of, if you'll pardon the pun, embryonic stage of (laughs) of, um, kind of research at the moment. But yep, sperm's produced once every two weeks, so the sperm is obviously affected if there's been exposure to alcohol. And also, here's the thing that, that completely fried my brain. If you have a woman who drinks in pregnancy who goes on to have a female child, the eggs in that female child are formed in utero. Yeah. So basically there can be two generations affected by Holy it. Holy shit. Yep. Wow. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But it's only half a carafe of wine. because It's only half a carafe of wine. I was just like, this is also shoddy journalism. Go and do your research properly. But, you know, it's, yeah. Do you think that is a lot of the problem? Do you think it's because we currently live in a society where it's easy to have an opinion and you don't necessarily have to back it up with facts that's kind of yeah. complicating the yeah. overall picture? I think, and I think, you know, going back to your, um, I, I really enjoyed your, um, your interview about um, outraged Yes. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the Twitter thing. And we are, it is so easy for everyone to be a rent-a-gob. You know, they just, they, they go on social media and, and let rip. And sometimes they're not particularly well informed, you know. And that, that, that's what I saw um, around that. And I think also people find almost as if they're kind of rehearsing a, a pro-life, pro-choice argument when they think about alcohol. Mm. it's kind of tied in with that. You're either for bodily autonomy and a woman's right to choose, or you're not. And if it's a woman's right to choose alcohol, then that should be fine. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not saying there should be legislation passed and people shouldn't be allowed to drink alcohol. But what I am saying is, I don't think that anyone would do it if they knew the risks. And it's not only heavy exposure to alcohol. It depends on a complex interplay of genetics and timing and you know we all we all have a we all have a friend who's under the table after two glasses of wine and we have another who can drink a bottle and yeah there's, there's no effect so well, that first one is yeah. increasingly me um <laughs> to me as well which is why i hold off on it but there's been really interesting research as well about the effect of of alcohol and twins Okay. And if they're non-identical, you can have one that doesn't have any effect and one that's affected. So it depends really on genetic and genetic makeup as well. So for some women who think that a glass of wine, a couple of glasses of wine or whatever is all right, it may well be that not not all prenatal alcohol exposure means FASD, mm. but you can't tell. You can't, yeah. you know, you, you, you don't know. So if you don't know, why would you do it? Mm, exactly that. I'm guessing... From what you're saying, there are way more kids out there who have FASD that have been diagnosed with Massively it. Massively undiagnosed, yeah. So if you've if if we've got people listening who mm-hmm. whose child who who a child they look after or maybe mm-hmm. like you a child that they've they've adopted and they they don't know what mm-hmm. the, the alcohol intake during pregnancy was that's something that's mm-hmm. sort of outside mm-hmm. of their control. Where would you suggest they started first to go about finding out whether that's oh. that's ha- what they're 
big challenges? Um, it would really depend on the circumstances of the child. I know that many foster parents and adoptive parents can't ever get a diagnosis because there is no record of alcohol use and pregnancy. And unfortunately, as things stand, you can't get a diagnosis unless there's confirmed use of alcohol. I think you can still adapt the environment to children you suspect may have FASD without having a diagnosis. So if you are a carer for a child who you suspect might have FASD, I would go online and I would join online groups as well. So NOFAS UK, up here in Scotland, we've got the FASD hub. It's, a, it's an excellent service um, and they've got a helpline and there's they've got loads of information as well online that you can read. Um, CANFASD, so um, the Canadian research organization has loads of good resources as well at the moment unless you have that then you can't you can't approach anyone for for a diagnosis but you can read up about it you can educate yourself and you can see what works I think also children with FASD need input from a lot of other specialists so they might need occupational therapy they might need speech and language therapy they might need mental health support so they might end up in the CAMS the child and adolescent mental health system it may be that if they can't get an FASD diagnosis, they, I mean, as was the case with my son, he got his diagnosis, but I knew he wouldn't cope with school without um, medication for hyperactivity. So he could get an ADHD diagnosis that would help him concentrate in mm. school and stop him throwing the contents of the classroom down the stairs. You know, there's that, that kind of stuff can help. I think if a child is in education as well, saying to the teachers... This is what I suspect. Yeah. This is what I suspect this child has. Don't take the behaviour as deliberate. It is all behaviour is communication. This is a response to something being wrong in the environment. If we fix it, the yeah. behaviour will resolve. Yeah. And, and I'm guessing, you know, we talked at the top about you know blame and mm-hmm. this idea. I'm guessing that the groups that you've mentioned try to operate outside of a system of blame and just deal with the the issue rather than how we arrived at yeah. that issue. Yeah. In actual fact, some of them were powerful advocates or birth mothers and they're really active in these groups. I hope this has been helpful to anyone who maybe suspects that they might either be struggling with this at home because I'm guessing lockdown probably doesn't make it any easier. I for, think for, there'll be a lot of lockdown babies actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but also people maybe to have a think mm. before they put something yeah. on Twitter. Um, Can I just say, though, I mean, I'm, I'm aware we've dwelt very much on the negatives yeah. of FESD. FESD does not need to be a life sentence. The, the key thing is early diagnosis and yeah. early support. And people can go on to to live perfectly fulfilled lives. I don't, I don't want to say that this is this is dreadful, you know, but early support prevention, if possible. Fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much, Elsa. Okay, thank you, Hannah. Hello, and welcome to Rated or Dated. Which film that got the key of the door? Do people still say that? Yeah, I well, I did. So let's say yes. It seems ironic to use for a prison film. But anyway, which <laughs> film did we watch this week, Meg? Well, this week we wish a happy... There is absolutely a question mark after that. 21st birthday to The Green Mile. 
a film that came out on December the 10th and certainly did not party like it was 1999, unless your idea of a good time is the second coming and, spoiler alert, killing of Jesus Christ. Because the big JC looms enormous in Frank Darabont's take on Stephen King's 1996 novel, except in this case, JC stands for John Coffey, like the drink, only not spelled the same, as we are told repeatedly, played by Oscar-nominated Michael Clark Duncan. Before we get to the plot, it is worth noting that The Green Mile marked Darabont's second foray into prison set Stephen King material, his first being 1994's The Shawshank Redemption. I mean, that is very much going to invite comparison, and indeed it did. A big success at the box office, The Green Mile didn't quite get the critic stars in the same way as its predecessor. At just over three hours long, it is a very slow burn. A bit like what happened to the character of Edward Delacroix. <laughs> I assume. I couldn't watch it. There are some properly gruesome scenes in this which earn it its 18 certificate. Okay, the plot. We're in Louisiana amid the Great Depression of the 1930s. Tom Hanks is Paul Edgecombe, an even-tempered death row corrections officer slash that Tom Hanks everyman we've come to know and love. He wields his power kindly amid his crew of equally even-tempered officers, Oh, apart from Bad Apple Percy Whitmore, who is an unforgivable fuckstick of the highest order. Enter John Coffey, a black man, Superman in size, boy in personality, supernatural in ability, but accused of the horrific rape and murder of two white girls. Yet, when Coffey performs miraculous acts of healing, taking away the bladder infection of a white man, resurrecting a dead mouse, the pet of a white man, and curing the cancer of a white woman married to a white man, Edgecombe begins to believe Coffee is innocent. No shit, mate. But is that enough to prevent Coffee from a one-time visit to old Sparky the Crucifix? Sorry, electric chair. No. He can save white folk, but not himself, and apparently has no interest in freeing his own problem. Problematic? Now, why would you say that? Hannah, had you seen it before? I mean, I assume the answer is yes. No. Well, I'd seen some of oh. it before. It is ridiculously long, three hours and nine minutes. And I had once watched it when it was on the telly. It didn't start till about 10 o'clock, which was ludicrous. And I didn't get through what happens to Michael Jeter's character in it. I had to stop watching at that point because it was midnight and I didn't want to watch anymore because that would give me dreams. So I, I had seen the first, I'd say, two thirds of it before, but I had stopped um, so michael jeter plays edward edward my french accent terrible or cajun or whatever but edward well, delacroix yeah so when you say you didn't get through what happened to him did you work out what was about to happen and stop well i think i got about the most of the way through that scene and i just thought i can't watch this anymore this is just horrific it i mean it's it, it just horrific and i did not really watch it this time i just did other stuff while it was going on because it is so horrific. I just stared um, in the opposite direction. It's just horrible. I mean, that's not to say that other things don't happen in it that are also, like, not especially pleasant. But that is, beyond words, horrible. But yeah, I think the key point to all of this is what you were alluding to there, which is the magical Negro yeah. trope. If people haven't heard of it, that's not my choice of words. That is... Our choice of words. Spike Lee's talked quite extensively about his dislike of the magical Negro trope. Just so people know, it's a black character 
who basically turns up in order to solve the problems of white people. They don't have to be magical, but in this case, he literally is. Yeah. This film wasn't criticised quite as heavily because it came out at the same time as another film called The Legend of Bagger Vance, which stars Matt Damon and Will Smith. Matt Damon. Matt Damon and Will Smith. Will Smith is a caddy who has magical powers and, like, helps Matt Damon win at golf. So I think of the two, that was the film that got more criticised than The Green Mile, because I think The Green Mile was at least trying to maybe make a political point about the death penalty, whereas, you know, The Legend of Bagavance was making a point about, I don't know, golf. So um, (laughs) it it kind of escaped. But it it is inescapable when when you watch it now, to be honest, despite the fact that it's an incredibly good performance by Michael Clark Duncan and any criticism would most definitely not be of him, but of, I suppose, Stephen King, who created the idea of... uh, It's uh, absolutely Stephen King's original material, and he's got previous with the magical Negro trope as well. It's not his first foray, uh, and it wasn't his last. So, yeah, criticism has been levelled at Stephen King. I mean, I remember The Leftovers got a bit of shit for having a magical Negro in it. Listeners, we hooked him. Sorry. Not him especially so much, but Regina King's dad in the second series who lives in that caravan and does have magical powers, it appears, has magical powers. But I think in defence of The Leftovers, the only reason that character ended up being black was because Regina King was cast as his daughter. That's it. I think the problem that comes within The Green Mile, which for a film that's three and a bit hours long, three hours, nine minutes long, is incredibly watchable. I think it's so beautifully filmed but the the problem comes that the only other black characters outside of john coffee are very present in the chain gang of the mm. the prison yards and breaking rocks and as as servants yeah that's it and also it's 1930s america to believe that actually the death row corrections officers would have been so respectful of John Coffey in the way that they are is actually more of a stretch of, it, of the imagination than in bringing back Mr. Jingles. Yeah, because obviously it's all focused on the one character that he is all evil and ill will. Well, two, because obviously Sam Rockwell's character, who is behind bars rather than a guard, I think he's the only character in it that displays any form of racism. I mean, arguably, the system was racist. Yes, totally. Mentioning Sam Rockwell, Sam Rockwell is great in absolutely everything and he is also great in this. Tom Hanks is really likeable. I think David Morse, who doesn't often get to play a nice guy, I think he was absolutely cracking in it. I'm going to briefly stop on on David Morse and say that David Morse is actually the same height as Michael Clark Duncan. So yeah, I'm they're wa- both six foot four. Six foot five, I believe. And I'm wondering whether, whether Clark Duncan had Tom Hanks' shoes on throughout all of this because there have been some <laughs> fancy jiggery pokery to try and make him look a shit sight taller yeah. than he actually was but yeah i mean actually great people riddled throughout this james cromwell gary sinise patricia clarkson paula malkinson also yeah, really briefly trixie and also as ever just something totally wonderful from michael jeter because that's what he used to do I think there is an element of, I feel like now, a kind of the same way I feel about the Fisher King, a kind of element now of sadness in that 
two men in this who went to their young death in this mm-hmm. actually went to a young death in real life. If you know, what I mean, Michael Clark Duncan and Michael Jeter both died in their early fifties, which is a sad thing. I think it's no age. Yeah, the woman staring down the barrel of forty-seven says it's no age. <laughs> it's it no really age. is no age. The women. Let's have a little chat about the women. Uh, they don't get a lot to do. Bonnie Hunt is excellent as Tom Hanks's foxy middle-aged wife. Patricia Clarkson is excellent as James Cromwell's foxy middle-aged wife with cancer. <laughs> and, yeah, you mentioned Paula Malcolmson, who is excellent as a young wife grieving the loss of her or the murder of her two children. But it's a man's film. I've picked another man's film. Mm. I, don't, I don't know what I'm trying to tell you across my choices for rated or dated, Hannah. But that's the thing. You set a, you set a film in a man's prison. It's like you set a film in a war. You're going to have to accept that there aren't that many female characters in it i mean in defense there actually are probably more female characters in it than a lot of films set in a men's prison have so i've certainly i've certainly upped my auntie from kelly's heroes i'm gonna put that out there yeah there is there is certainly a few more i mean it's one of those films that is quite it's quite difficult for me to say one way or the other whether i actually enjoyed it because it's quite arduous it's hard work watching it I did see I didn't find it hard work. So why did you find I mean, I say that, but then I looked away for quite big chunks because it was too horrific. So maybe I did find it hard work and I just, you know, bunked off for a bit. Well, I think because it's just anything that's basically set at a time where, you know, I mean, you could say arguably that would be included now, but where justice is not evenly applied. And I feel quite strongly about the death penalty and therefore mm, yes therefore watching something that you ultimately know that loads and loads of people are going to end up going to their deaths in a really barbaric way and what i will say one of the reasons i didn't watch that michael jeter scene is because not just because it's horrible that it takes him an awfully long way to die but also because a couple of years ago in america the drug that they use to kill people by lethal injection, whoever it was that manufactured it, stopped selling it to America, I think, in a in a human rights bid because they didn't want to endorse the use of death by lethal injection. You might want to Google that. I might be slightly wrong. Maybe Maybe there was another reason they stopped selling it to them. But what I will say is that a lot of the southern states then were left in a situation where they had to come up with formulas in attempt to put people to death by lethal injections. And in a number of quite serious cases, and this is absolutely true, you can Google it, people took hours to die. And that is fucking obscene. So the idea Mm. that you're watching something and your brain says it's okay, it's the past, but then your other bit of your brain goes, it's not the past, they still haven't solved this problem. There were people who they just couldn't kill and the most horrific under the most horrific circumstances in Louisiana and that still happens I find yeah. it upsetting to watch personally but yeah well so maybe not say, saying it's not hard work isn't correct for me I guess what it means like for three hours I do I do feel that is an overlong film but I didn't feel the length of it I wasn't ever bored I wasn't ever you know will this end it did absolutely make me think about the death penalty and how barbaric it is and 
was and still is, 25 states still have the death penalty, which is outrageous. I just don't think we have the right. There's a whole, you know, whole conversation to be had around that because obviously it's it's a very emotive conversation in America, isn't it? Yeah, um, very And much. here in certain circles. But yeah, it definitely did bring that to the fore. I think what I mean is I certainly didn't feel the length of it in a way I thought I might before I started watching it. Well, is that possibly because I sent you a tweet? Because I sent you a, a, a message because the last line in this is sometimes the green mile is very long. And I sent one, they said, the message that said, you, you're fucking telling me. <laughs> After three hours, ten minutes of my Sunday spent watching it. There was one fun fact that I wanted to tell you, you might have noticed in it. You seem to always want to pick a film that's got Harry Dean Stanton in it, whether by choice or by accident. Now it's a thing. I've made a thing. Well, actually, did you notice that you had a double? Was he in it twice? <laughs> he wasn't, but the p- character played by Barry Pepper in this is called Dean Stanton. Wowzers. There you go. Wowzers. That is a fun fact. It, isn't it? Harry Dean Stanton's great in it as well. Like a little yeah. bit of comic relief. Yeah. Um, which is, is it necessary? I don't know, but I enjoyed his performance a lot. I think the performances are all across the board. They're superb. They are. And I think it does ask a couple of moral questions. Whitmore's comeuppance is... He's called Wetmore, sorry, to be a stickler. Yeah, Of course he is, because he pisses himself and they all make a Mm. joke out of it. But his comeuppance, which ultimately is that he has a brain tumour put inside him and then goes utterly mad and ends up locked up in an asylum, is odd because it appeals to a level of vengeance in you that sits alongside a film that says that vengeance isn't necessarily the answer. Yes. Yeah. Even before we get to that bit, them chucking him in the padded cell for a bit feels, does it feel harsh? It doesn't feel harsh because he's hateful. But at the same time, do I think that kind of thing should go on in institutions? Absolutely not. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting one. Did I actually want David Morse to pound him into a jelly after he'd done it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So how do I get to judge people who want the kind of vengeance that the electric chair brings? I don't know. That is an interesting question, I think, that this film poses. So do you think it is rated or dated? Uh, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Today is not good for a podcast, is it? So I'm going to panic answer something. I am going to say dated. Partly because I think it that it is possibly one of the most egregious examples of something that, like I say, people of colour involved in the arts have specifically spoken out against, which is the the magical Negro trope. And partly because I don't know how much I thought it was a really good film in the first place. So I, I don't know how how strongly I would feel about defending it against that accusation. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't have much more to add, apart from it does get some props for me for having an excellent mouse. Yeah. Mr Jingles is very, very cool. Well, excellent mice, because he's played by several different mice. Yeah. I don't want to go into the ins and outs no, of animal training. No, that's the same mouse, 100 years later, Mickey. That is exactly oh, okay. the same mouse, I'm telling you. Oh, thanks, Hannah. Okay. Oh, that's nice. 
looks nice. He looks he looks old. He looks old by the end. He looks tired. He I, looks think, like, I felt I, I felt like that mouse. <laughs> he, he, he felt <laughs> he looked like a hamster that I had that that lived for three years and they're not really supposed to. And he just got very tired at the end. Very yeah. tired. Very tired. I think we, I think we're all that mouse mm. right now. Absolutely. After the American election, we're all feeling a bit tired and like we're just like a little padded cigar box and some nibbles. Hannah, what are we watching next time? Next time, I thought we'd watch something that was a bit less arduous on the uh, philosophy brain and, you know, a bit more of just unmitigated fun. Or I'm thinking unmitigated fun. I don't know. It's been a while since I've watched it. Come on, stop waffling. The Goonies. The Goonies. I've got a lot of love for the Goonies, but I'm going to keep my powder dry about the fact that that probably has problems too. Yeah, it probably does. 35 years old, the Goonies is. 30? What? The, no, that's. I'm, I've, I'm taking issue with that. It's not allowed to be. How it, do we it, stop time, Hannah? It always begs the question, if that's that old, how the fuck old am I? <laughs> Standard issue for all women.